Good morning, New Life Church. Man, glad you're here this morning. You're able to dig out of your driveways. Just a shout out to, uh, to our snow clearing crew at New Life Church. Those guys need a pat on the back, I tell you. Because we do not pay them enough to do that work. And uh, they were just busy a few times this week getting this place in shape so that we could be in here together. It is good to be together. I don't know about you, but this is a highlight of my week. The sermons are always great. You know, might be biased. I don't think it's that. I think it's more just, uh, I find my spirits lifted by being together, by worshiping you, by seeing you. And um, so thank you for just being a part of uh, the ministry to me this morning. And uh, I know there's a few people here. Every Sunday, there's a few faces I haven't seen in a long time. So welcome back if it's been a while for some of you. And for those of you online, we're, uh, we're looking forward to the day when... Um, Hopefully coming soon, one of these Sundays, when we'll see you here. And I know some of you have never yet actually been uh, in this building for, for worship. And so we're looking forward to worshiping with those who have joined our church online. And I bump into people in the community that are like that. So that's exciting. God is still at work in us and through us, around us. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'll just kind of share some family news, which I often do to start off the message here, because... We don't see one another as often as we normally would, and maybe you don't have opportunity to celebrate those things that happen in the life of our body, or maybe, or maybe kind of bear one another's burdens. But um, this morning in our first service, little Theo Basso, the son of Eric and Heather Basso, was dedicated here to the Lord by his parents in our first service. And uh, so I, I thought you needed to be aware of that because you are a part of New Life Church, and the people in the first service committed you. They weren't here, but they committed you to play an active role in raising up Theo and supporting the Basso family as they raise him up in the faith. So I thought you should be aware of that, encourage them. Maybe you heard the good news of uh, another little baby boy coming into the world a couple days ago, Janelle Irwin, you may know her better as Janelle Gertzen, who married Justin Irwin a year and a half ago. Janelle and Justin, young couple in our church, just welcomed their first child into the world, a boy, Maddox Ryan Irwin. A couple days ago. So a big congratulations to them and their family. And when you have opportunity, just wish them all the best. Uh, let's be praying for uh, the Turek family. Uh, they were here in first service, but we have seen the last of the Turek family here on a Sunday morning. Uh, many of you will know them well. Just a really integral family to our church who have just poured themselves into ministry here uh, in, in a way that has just been remarkable. And they will be sorely missed. And they're going to create gaps in some of our youth and kids ministry that others will have the opportunity to step into. So uh, they're moving to Nova Scotia here this week, them and their three kids. So let's be praying for the Turek families. They make that transition. And let's be praying for the Emmers. Paul right now undergoing cancer treatment in Mexico for a few weeks. His wife, Alice, and their eight kids uh, together here in Stonewall, um, separated from their husband, their father for that time. Uh, let's be praying for them. Let's be lifting them up and supporting them in tangible ways. We're organizing some meals, and if you aren't already a part of the meals ministry team, you want to support that way, call the office. We'll get you connected. We'll find ways for you to be able to, um, to help. We've just come through a Christmas season. A couple weeks ago, I took down the family Christmas tree, the same Christmas tree that Eric and I purchased for our first Christmas. I still remember walking into the Home Depot on Bishop Grandin Boulevard, 
buying the $59 special. And it looked like a 50, it still looks like a $59 tree. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like one of those trees that just doesn't have enough branches to really look that nice. And so my job every Christmas when we set up this tree is I'm the fluffer, okay? The tree fluffer. Brenda, come on. Show some respect. <laughs> no, I got, I got that title for a few reasons. But one of them is that I fluff the tree at our house. I try to make it look as pretty as I can. So I, what I'll do is I'll stack it. My family decorates, but I stack. And because it was packed in a box, all those branches are packed together. And so I have to bend them out so they're sticking out. And I have to try to bend each one of those little branches and twigs at a 90-degree angle so as best as I can to try to fill out the tree to make it look pretty because there just aren't enough branches on this little six-foot Christmas tree. I do the best I can, and then what I do is I lie on the floor, you know, <laughs> our tree's in the corner where a tree goes, and I'll, and I'll spin uh, the trunk of the tree, and I, and I say to Erica, Erica, tell me to stop when it looks the best, right? So I'll be spinning it, and she just say, stop, stop, that's the best side. All right, good. So that's the side that goes out. That's the side we all see, and then the bad side stays in the back, right? We want to put out the best side of the tree, and maybe you do that too. We all do that. Uh, except my grandma. My grandma doesn't do that. It was always exciting as a kid when we went to visit grandma. She's still alive, 93, living in Oak Bank, healthy. Such an awesome woman. But I remember as a kid, we'd visit her in Regina, Saskatchewan. Best thing that ever happened to Saskatchewan was my grandma. Um, we as kids would wonder, how ugly is grandma's tree going to be? Because we knew that grandma always picked the ugliest tree on the lot. It became a game, actually. So we got too excited. We would get to grandma's house for Christmas, and we'd run downstairs to see how ugly grandma's Christmas tree was. And it was ugly. Like, some years, really ugly. Like, it was wider than it was tall. You seen one of those where it had, like, four branches that extended out, like, four feet? And maybe had, like, a few twigs, like, eight, eight pine needles on it? It was an ugly tree. Every year, though, Grandma would pick the ugliest tree, kind of that Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Uh, you know, Matthew, when he opens his gospel, he gives us that kind of family tree. He gives us the family tree of Jesus at the beginning of the gospel. And no, most people, when they give their family tree, they want to put their best side forward out. And of course, in, in those days, in the Jewish culture, your, fam that, your family tree was your resume. You know, it, it wasn't where you worked, where you got your education. Your resume, your credentials were your family tree. And so Matthew begins his gospel by giving us the family tree. But it's a weird tree. Because he doesn't seem to like turn the best side forward. He seems to highlight all the flaws and all the stains and the holes in Jesus' family tree. Anyone who read that, who would read that in his day and age would have said, really, Matthew, you're going to share that part, are you? And so we see all of those, the outsiders, the outcasts, the sinners, the flawed, that Matthew draws attention as he tries to tout the credentials of Jesus as the anointed Holy One of God. He turns the ugly side out. Because you have these unusual entries. First of all, you see these women in, in the genealogy. In those days, you wouldn't normally list the women. You just would list the men. You know, Abraham was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so. And yet, early on in this genealogy, you get record of Tamar. 
Matthew mentions Tamar's name. Tamar? Oh yeah, if you go back into the story, she was the one who, who, who dressed up like a harlot and prostituted herself to her father-in-law and got impregnated by her father-in-law. Ooh, that's a weird story. Ooh, that's messy. Jesus comes from Tamar. A few verses later, oh, and then there was Rahab. Jesus comes from Rahab. Who was Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite woman outside the people of God and a prostitute as well. Jesus comes from Rahab. A few verses later, you get mention of Ruth. Well, who was Ruth? She was a Moabite woman. She too was a foreigner outside of the covenant of God's people. And yet Jesus comes from Rahab. And yet a few verses later, he says, oh, and Jesus came from Bathsheba. But he doesn't use the name Bathsheba. He refers to Bathsheba as Uriah's wife because he's trying to remind us that David shacked up with a woman who wasn't his wife and had the husband of that woman knocked off so he could take her for himself. And so Matthew says, Solomon, whose mother was, Jesus comes from Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. You see what he's doing? He's not trying to hide it. He's turning the ugly side out. There were, there were upstanding women he could have chosen to highlight, and he didn't. It was Tamar. It was Bathsheba. Why? Why? Why ugly side out? I wonder if it had something to do with Matthew's own story, who he was, his own experience of Jesus. It's a story that we actually have told in the Gospel of Mark, so now we're going to leap to the Gospel of Mark where we have this Matthew's encounter with Jesus. This is week two of a series we've called Kingdom Come. We're going through the Gospel of Mark over 14 weeks, and we are discovering the nature of God's kingdom. Because right away, this, this big statement at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, the very first words of Jesus in this Gospel are the words we find in chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus says, "'The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news.'" Jesus is saying, I have brought the kingdom of God to establish it on earth. What is the kingdom of God? Well, we talked a bit about that last week. We summarized it as the kingdom of God is where God's way holds sway, where God is king, where things go according to the way He wants them, the way He intends. It's where His way holds sway. And as Christians, we pray that prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Father, who art in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's kingdom? It's where His will is done, where all things are right. We don't live in a world where everything is right, do we? I mean, we live in a broken world, broken by sin, broken by sickness and disease, broken in all sorts of ways. But... But the gospel of Mark begins with this great promise, this great truth that in Jesus, God has begun the reconciliation of the world to Himself. He has begun the work of restoration. This is what Jesus has initiated, the kingdom of God. It, it isn't done. It isn't complete. The Bible shows us how it will be completed and what it will look like when it's complete. It's not complete, but it has come in Jesus and it is growing and you and I, we are a part of that. All who follow Jesus, we are part of this growing kingdom that God will bring to completion when He will once and for all set all things right when Jesus comes again. And so we're exploring the nature of this kingdom of which we're a part. What does it look like? What does it look like to live in it? What does it look like to be used by God to build it? And so last week, 
we found that that Mark gives us this really important first truth about the kingdom of God, and that's that the kingdom begins within. It's not first about changing political systems. It's not first about economics. It's not first about social justice. It's not first about behavior modification. It's about inner heart transformation. That's where the kingdom of God begins. And so Jesus, when he had all, in, in, in the gospel of Mark, when all these people were bringing their sick people to him to be healed, because that's what will happen in the kingdom, right? The crippled will walk, the blind will see, and so they came and they were being healed by Jesus. But in, in, in Mark chapter 2, when the crippled man lowered through the roof who wants to walk is laid before Jesus, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is saying, what you need more than new legs is you need a new heart. You need a new relationship with God. And it's out of the newness of your heart that change will come outside, in your life, in your family, in your community, in your society, but it begins within. A transformed relationship with God through Jesus. But the next encounter is really telling too. In this next encounter, Jesus is going to show us who is welcome in the kingdom of God, who the kingdom is for. So let's look at the story. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out, uh, or went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the sinners and with the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. This is a very important story where Jesus is showing us who the kingdom of God is is for. So he comes across this tax collector. We're told his name is Levi, son of Alphaeus. He doesn't show up again anywhere in the story, and that's probably because he does, but he, but he shows up under a different name. It's, it's, it's most likely that Levi is none other than Matthew himself, and maybe you know that often one person has multiple names in the Bible, right? Simon was also Peter, and sometimes it'll refer to Simon, sometimes to Peter. We think it's Matthew because in the gospel of Matthew, this exact same story happens word for word, almost identical, but it's Matthew who is the tax collector, not Levi. So the consensus is this is Levi, or sorry, this Levi is Matthew. And this Matthew is a tax collector. And Jesus calls this tax collector to follow him. He uses those words, follow me. And it's not the first time Jesus uses those words, follow me, in the Gospel of Mark. To understand what Jesus is doing here, you've got to go back to the first time he uses those words, in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, right after Jesus has said in verse 15 that the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, what's the next thing he does? The next thing he does is he starts to create a community for his kingdom. He begins the work of creating a kingdom community. 
Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, so that's Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed Jesus. So Jesus comes right away to a few of these men, and he says the same words, follow me. Now, this isn't a follow me like we use today, right? Like uh, we're in the social media age, follow means to like follow on Instagram or Facebook or something, which means to be a fan of someone. To follow someone means to be a fan. And that's not what Jesus means when he says follow me. And, and like we've said it before, to be a fan is to like someone, but to be a follower is to be like someone, right? It's to become like someone. So what Jesus is saying is, follow me, become like me, be a student of me, be a disciple. And I know the disciple, we don't use those, that, that word so much. It's a very churchy word, but if we were to use like a, a 21st century word for disciple, it would be apprentice. Come be my apprentice. Learn from me to be like me. I will show you how to do what? Well, one of the things he says is, I'm going to show you how to fish for people. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to show you how to call people into the kingdom, just as I'm calling you into the kingdom. To fish. And who are they to call? What would that look like? Well, Jesus is about to show them. First of all, he's called them, right? And, and we know that these guys, they're normal dudes, not educated, not intellectuals, not elites. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, referring to these same four men, James, John, Peter, Andrew, who were, who were had to, hauled before the religious leaders of the day, the religious leaders looked at them and called them, quote, unschooled, ordinary men, normal guys. So Jesus calls these normal guys, and now he's going to show them how to fish, He's going to show them who the kingdom is for. And he shows them in this encounter with this tax collector. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus was walking along and he saw Levi, Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. So he calls a tax collector. Now, maybe you've kind of studied the Bible enough, you've heard enough sermons to already know that being a tax collector then is not like working for the CRA today, which might be a more reputable profession. Some may argue that. But back in the day, to be a tax collector was to be despised, was to be loathed. You were somebody of ill repute. A good person wouldn't associate with a bad person like a tax collector, because back in those days, of course, Israel was ruled by the Romans, and the Romans wanted to get their taxes out of their subjects. And so what did they do? Well, they wanted to tax, they wanted to create a toll booth at this intersection, and they might say, this year we'd like to get a million dollars out of this intersection, so they would have a bidding process. And you could come and you could bid to be the tax collector there. And all you had to do if you won the bid is you had to give Rome their money, but you could collect as much money as you wanted, and, the, and anything that was over and above your, your contractual obligation to Rome was yours. 
So it attracted like the greedy types, the type that were totally okay exploiting their kin. And Matthew was one of these guys, right? Corrupted, greedy, exploiting people financially, needy people, and doing it for Rome, no less, like the oppressor. Your name is Levi? Isn't that supposed to be like the name of the priestly people of Israel? Levi. What a terrible name. You should have been Jeremy, not Levi. Right? No offense to Jeremy's out there. It's a beautiful name. Here you are working for the enemy. So you're, 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 you're corrupt. You're a traitor. You're unclean because you deal with all the riffraff, the people that the Jewish people aren't supposed to have anything to do with. And yet Jesus comes to this guy. He looks at him and he says, follow me. Now that would have been shocking. It's hard for us to understand how shocking that would have been to his disciples, like the John, James, Andrew, Peter, and to the Pharisees, others there, and to Levi himself. Excuse me, me? Follow you? It would have been shocking, scandalous, certainly a strange choice for someone to be called into the kingdom to follow Jesus. But what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us the nature of his kingdom. It's a different sort of kingdom, okay? It's a kingdom that's for everybody. It's a kingdom that's for everybody. And I, what I want to do in this story is just kind of draw out four observations for us out of the story that show us the nature of the kingdom, how it is for everybody. Number one, what we see in this encounter is that sinners don't need to do something first to become worthy recipients of God's love. They don't need to do anything first. They become worthy recipients by accepting the call. You know, like, th there was no preconditions that Jesus set for Matthew. Hey, if you would do this, then you could follow me. No, he just says, right where you are, follow me. No conditions before the call. You know, I, I think some people tend to think of the gospel, the Christian faith, as very exclusionary. It's like an insider's club. You know, it's, it's narrow. Because didn't Jesus say, John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to God the Father except through me, no one, I am the one way. Isn't that a little exclusive? Yeah, in a way. Because there is no other way to, rec to, to be reconciled with God than through Jesus Christ. But I think we can miss the radically inclusive nature of what that means. Because every other way that man had devised to come to God involved a system of working your way up a ladder to be good enough to reach a certain point of acceptability. But not like Jesus. He's saying, there's a way I have made and everybody has equal access to it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's immaterial. You have the same access as anybody else. It's equal opportunity. Don't miss how radically inclusive the gospel is. It's for people like Levi, and they don't even have to change first. So here we see Jesus invites sinners. He invites those that seem utterly unqualified for the kingdom. And we'll see this time and time again, right? Even when he's dying on the cross, right? He's hanging between two criminals, we're not sure what they did to get themselves on a cross, but it was bad. Murder, rape, theft, we're not sure. 
But what we do know is that in his dying moments, one of those criminals looked at Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, it's a little late for that. You should have thought of that before. Now you want mercy? No. He said, I tell you, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. He was the first one. He was the first guy that walked through the gates into the heavenly kingdom of God. You know, there's some people, maybe you've heard it, maybe you've said it. I've certainly heard it. Man, if I ever went to church, that place would start on fire. I would start on fire. I'd be struck by lightning bolts because I'm this sort of person. I'm not that sort of person. I've done this. But what Jesus is showing us is that, yeah, follow me. The kingdom of God is for you. It's for everybody. You don't need to do anything to become a worthy recipient of it. So it doesn't matter. So this is what I want to say to you. I mean, I know some of you. I don't know all of you. I don't know your backgrounds. But what I would say is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. None of that disadvantages you from being called and brought into the kingdom of God, being reconciled with God. Because the kingdom is for everybody. It is a kingdom of grace. And so Jesus, boy, this really must have ticked off. Those Pharisees, those really righteous, good people, that didn't do anything that Levi did. This is what it says, Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. <laughs> These guys, the sinners, the worst, they are entering the kingdom of God before you. We normally think it's the other way around. Why? Well, Jesus gives a little story, a, a parable of the kingdom. You find it in Luke chapter 18 when it says that two, Jesus says, two men up, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector back there. For I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was saying, I am so undeserving. I have done nothing to deserve your favor. Jesus says, I had tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Because the only people who aren't qualified to get into the kingdom of God are the people who think they're qualified to get into the kingdom of God. The only prerequisite is that you are unqualified. See, the Pharisees, those that through their goodness tried to be right with God, they based their standing with God on their own merit, on their own works. But the sinner based his standing with God on God's mercy. And you don't enter the kingdom of God by merit. You can only enter by mercy. So Jesus calls the unqualified. It's a kingdom of unqualified people who don't have to change as a condition before they come in. Change is the consequence of that decision that comes after. 
So that's the first point. Jesus doesn't need to do something first, or sorry, sinners don't need to do something first to become worthy recipients of God's love. The second thing I want us to see is that Jesus makes no distinction between people by ranking or classifying them. He doesn't have a system. In fact, Jesus spurns any system of ranking or classifying people. See, the Pharisees, they had a, well, you know, uh, uh, a well-ordered system, right? They loved to categorize people, the holy, you know, the, the degrees of holiness or unholiness, those who are clean, those who are unclean, the righteous, the sinner, those who are favored, those who are unfavorable. They had this elaborate system of ranking and categorizing people. And of course, they were at the top of the system. So it seemed to serve them well. But Jesus, here what we see is Jesus gathers all of these people without discrimination under the wing of God's love and grace. There are no categories. The kingdom is for everybody. Jesus will associate himself equally with all. With all. So so here he is eating. He doesn't just call Levi to follow him. He goes to Levi's house for supper and hangs out with his tax collector sinner buddies and they party. They have a good old time. And that's what made the Pharisees upset. You're you're going to hang out and associate with those people? You're going to share yourself with those people? And he did. He ate with them. But he also did the same with the Pharisees. There's other times when he's at the home of the Pharisees with the Pharisees and their friends eating and dining with them and giving himself to them. You see, what Jesus is saying is that you've got the system upside down. We need to invert the system. It's not, it's not, we shouldn't serve the rich, serve the poor. Poor up there, rich down here, not rich up there, poor down here. And that's what we see in the world. We see like people are dissatisfied with the system, so they're just inverting the system. The kingdom of God isn't about inverting the system, inverting the rankings. It's about doing away completely with any classifications, categorizations, or rankings. But don't we tend to rank people? I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the guy with the problem. My wife says I have problems. I said, no, you're the one with the problems. I won't go into that story. That's just that, no, I've learned how not to do that. We tend to rank people, I think, naturally. People that we think are maybe more deserving of God's love and blessing and what we have to offer than other people. Like, I wouldn't want to give that to that person over there. They don't deserve it. Look what they've done. Look who they are. No. Mm-mm. No, they don't deserve that. Or maybe we, we tend to look at people and we rank people by whether we think that they would actually respond to the call. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go and call them. You know, they would never, they would never say yes, right? That sort of person, they, they would never say yes. It, it's, I should, probably shouldn't waste my time sharing myself and God's love with that person. They wouldn't. And what Jesus says is, oh yeah, yeah, all sorts of people will. The kingdom is for everybody. We should not prejudge who deserves or who might respond to the love of God, to His gospel. But I think we just naturally tend to do that. We build in our head that client profile. He, he, here's, haven't you ever said that? That person would make a great Christian. You ever said that? That person would make a great Christian. It doesn't jive with this. 
We want to make a client profile. Like companies do this, right? Who is our demographic? We want to target. Today it's all about targeting, right? So, hey, we're a company. We're selling Nike sneakers. I don't want to be advertising to Edith, 80-year-old Edith, who's into knitting on Facebook. That's a waste of my money. Edith isn't going to buy my sneakers. Sneakers are for young people, this sort of person. And so they have all these algorithms to build a perfect client profile to target the target audience. And what Jesus says is there is no target audience for the kingdom of God. There's no client profile. One's position, their pedigree, their reputation, their lifestyle is neither an asset nor a liability in responding to God's call or receiving it. So Jesus makes no distinction between people by ranking and classifying them. Thirdly, third thing I want us to see, that by associating with sinners, Jesus isn't affirming their lifestyle, but he's affirming that they and their lifestyle can be changed. Do you ever find yourself like maybe a little bit uneasy associating with someone that in your own ranking system like might consider a sinner, whatever, them, a, a Levi? The tax collectors had a problem with that, or, or the, sorry, the Pharisees. In fact, the word Pharisee literally means the separated ones. That's what they did. They separated themselves from the unholy, from the unrighteous. Because they, they wanted to be holy and righteous. So they separated themselves. They tried to avoid people like Levi. Why? Well, at least probably for two reasons. The first reason is to show their disapproval on Levi's lifestyle. How do I show my disapproval that I think that's not right? The way you're living isn't right. That's not good. Why? Well, I can maybe show that by like actually not associating. Because I don't want to be seen by them or by anyone else to, to be condoning that. I don't want to condone that. And Jesus didn't want to condone it either. Levi's greed. But the Pharisees, they, they, they separated themselves to show that disapproval. And, or, and maybe it was also a fear of contamination. If, if, I, if I like actually share myself, share God's love with this person, how will that reflect on me? Will that contaminate my reputation? Will... Will some of that sin, some of that rub off on me? And for those reasons, the Pharisees, and maybe we might be, have, have a tendency to like avoid, separate from certain types of people. But what Jesus is showing us is that a self-righteous contempt for, like for sinners, for spiritually sick people, does little to help them. And it, and it probably just compounds their alienation. I can only imagine Levi... It's like, Levi wondered, do I have to be like this? Could I be something different? Could I be something better? Well, well, you know, like all the Pharisees, they said, no, you couldn't. No. Separating ourselves, and you will always be what you are. And that's true for a lot of people. It's their guilt and the lack of belief and the lack of hope of change that actually keeps them where they are. And so in Jesus, in associating with these people, he's not affirming their lifestyle. He's affirming that they can change. He's saying there's hope. It's possible that you can be different, you can be new. What Jesus is saying is that there's no one outside of God's reach, no one that God can't make new. But the Pharisees, they focused on what the sinner could do to them. Jesus focused on what he could do for them. He associated with them to, as a way to say, I believe you can change. 
the fourth and last thing here I want us to see about the kingdom in this encounter is that the kingdom doesn't just welcome sinners. The kingdom seeks them out to bless them with God's love. Those are two different things. We often conflate them and we shouldn't because I know a lot of us, we go, I'm not like a Pharisee. I would never do, I would never live like that. Our church isn't like a church like that. We're a wel- I'm a welcoming person and I'm a, we're a welcoming church. We like to use that word, welcoming, and that's good. We should be. But I want you to know that Jesus did more than welcome because what is welcoming? Welcome means if you come here, I'll receive you. Oh, yeah, we want to be the sort of church that if that sort of person walked in our doors, we would give them love indiscriminately. See, the problem with the Pharisees is that they would avoid, but it's not that Jesus just didn't avoid. He actually went out of his way to seek out. See, in this story, it's not that Levi says, hey, Jesus, can I follow you too? And he looks back and he says, yeah, yeah, you can. Come on. It didn't even cross Levi's mind that he could or would follow Jesus. Jesus went to him, he sought him out, and he said, follow me. See, there's a difference between being welcoming and being inviting. Welcoming is, if you come here, we'll love you. Inviting is, I'm going to bring God's love to you. And this is what Jesus would do over and over again, right? He would try to close. He would be the one that would close the distance between people. I love that story. We kind of skipped over uh, last Sunday in Mark chapter 1. A leper comes to Jesus and wants to be healed. And Jesus could have stood back at a safe distance and said, "Ah, I do want to heal you. Be healed. He could have done it. But what does he do? If you look back in the story, it says he reached out and he touches him. Like skin on skin contact with a leper. Remember skin-on-skin contact? Hugging, handshakes. He didn't have to. What is he doing? He's like, I'm going to cover the distance. I'm I'm sharing myself with you. I'm coming into your space to be a blessing. He touched the leper and he healed him physically. And this is what he's doing now spiritually. He's reaching out to Levi and he's closing that distance to bring God's love and his blessing. It's Jesus that initiates, I guess is what I want want us to see here. Not Levi, it's Jesus. And Jesus would say that he had come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Elsewhere, Jesus would say, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus does the seeking. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God seeks for people. And what kind of people? It seeks for every kind of people. And it certainly seeks the Levi's. That's a kingdom-shaped Christian. That's a kingdom-shaped church. What would it look like for you to look like that? What would it look like for New Life Church? Not to be a welcoming church. That's great. I hope we're a welcoming church. But to go beyond that, to be a, to be a seeking church. Not just bringing people to Jesus, but bringing Jesus to people. Because that's the kingdom. That's the nature of the kingdom. I read an example of this. Some of you are familiar with a guy named Tony Campolo, well-known Christian author, speaker. Uh, He he records a story. He had flown to Honolulu. He was unable to sleep late this one night. So he ventured out to an all-night diner. 
There he overheard a group of prostitutes talking. One mentioned to her friends that the next day was her 39th birthday. Another of the prostitutes replied scornfully, well, what do you want, a birthday party? She retreated into her defensive shell and she said, "Um, I've never had one of those in my whole life. Why should I expect one now? It struck Campolo that it would be a good idea to conspire with the owner of the diner to throw her a surprise party the next night. So they did. A cake was baked and all was prepared, and that night the cries of happy birthday rung out from the small group of friends, and this stranger, Tony, this pastor, uh, and it left her stunned. She was shocked that anyone would go to such trouble just for her. She asked if she could take the cake home and then left with the prize. When she left, Campolo offered to pray and prayed for her salvation, for her life to change, and for God to be good to her. Um, The prayer startled the owner, who asked antagonistically, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? Tony responded that he belonged to a church that threw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. That's the way of the kingdom. Jesus is showing us it's a kingdom for everybody. It's a kingdom that seeks everybody. So when I was talking with my grandma about her Christmas tree, she told me that uh, she had taken the tree to the cashier at the lot, and the cashier had told her, that's not a nice tree. And my grandma answered her, I don't care, I like this tree. And I asked my grandma why she liked the tree. And she said, I was drawn to the ugly tree. It gave me joy to pick it. And I thought, I think that's the heart of God. I saw the ugly tree and it gave me joy to pick it. So Matthew was that tree. So I wonder if that's why he opens his gospel by showing the bad side out. It's his way of saying, I was one of those people. And if Jesus came from people like that, he has come for people like that. For the Levites of the world, the sinners, the prostitutes, those far from God. God's kingdom is for everybody. What would it look like, bringing this to a close here, what would it look like for you to believe that? And what would it look like for you to embody that in the way you live your life? Because Jesus had called those first guys ordinary people, people like you and me. And then he says, I'm going to show you how to fish. And then he goes and he says to Levi, follow me. And he's doing the same for us. He's showing us how to fish in the kingdom. He's showing us who to call. What would it look like for you to believe and embody that? Let me put these couple of questions on the screen for you. For you to ponder, to pray over, to take home with you. Have you categorized yourself? I know some of you. Some of you I know well. Some of you don't know at all. Have you, for good or for bad, have you categorized yourself? Maybe you're one of those people that says, I'm not like that sort of people. I don't know that this is for me. I don't know that God would accept me. 
Maybe he would even let me in the door and have mercy, but that's about as far as I would get because this is who I am and this is what I've done. Have you categorized yourself? Said, I'm not worthy of the kingdom. I'm not worthy of full inclusion, full recipient of God's love. And the second question, have you categorized others? Think on that. Who are the people in your life, the actual, you know, individuals or types of people that you tend to categorize, you tend to rank and say, you know, the kingdom is more for this sort of person and not for that sort of person. They would never. Have you categorized others? Who are the Levi's around you? What would it look like for you to be like Jesus? To go, not to welcome should they come, but to actually seek out and enter into relationship to bless people like that in Jesus' name. What could that look like? To live out this radical nature of God's kingdom, this kingdom of grace, a kingdom for everybody. Can I invite you to a moment of prayer on those questions right now? Like right where you are, each of us, we can interact with God, we can talk with God, we can hear from God. Why don't you take a moment... And first of all, why don't you thank God for His grace? Because you know what? At the end of the day, who are the sinners Jesus came for? It's not your neighbor. It's not just your spouse. It's you, right? All of us are those who need God's grace and have entered His kingdom by the grace of God shown through Jesus Christ. Why don't you just take a moment to thank God for the richness of His mercy to you? Just think about nothing that you are or nothing that you've done keeps you from experiencing the fullness of his love. Full inclusion in his kingdom. Maybe take another moment and just ask God, God, who are the Levi's in my life? can I seek out? Who can I love in your name? Maybe God's even giving you a face or a name or a group of people right now. We just ask God, God, would you show me how I, can, how I can be like Jesus and how I can seek and share your love and your blessing with this person, with these people? God, would you give me the courage to do so?